Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewall's Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker, and today we have part two of our interview, our fascinating interview with Cory Doctorow. If you missed part one for some reason, you should definitely go back and check that one out first. It was just last week where we talked about kind of the Internet of Things and how the Internet of Things is really kind of subject to the same problems that digital rights management has in the modern era where these devices that cost, in many cases, hundreds of dollars are completely useless if the company that's attached to those uh, shuts down the internet service or changes the internet service or is bought out by somebody else and then that service gets changed or shut down. So we talked about that a little bit last week and today we're going to kind of slide into a, a related topic about the right to repair, which is, you know, do you have the right to get your devices repaired at any, by anybody that you want? And it's not as clear cut as you might think. So uh, we're going to talk about that. It, there's a lot of thorny issues there. And then we'll wrap up with the usual, you know, what do I do about this? <laughs> you know, how can I get involved or you know, how can I be a good consumer to buy the right goods and you know, not buy the bad ones and so on. Now, before we get into part two, I must warn you, there is swearing. <laughs> there is swearing in the interview. Uh, I don't generally do that, but, uh, you know, it kind of goes with the interview and he actually asked me in the middle of the interview if he could swear, and I say, ah, go ahead. So, you know, I will warn you now, for some reason, you don't like swearing. I decided not to bleep it out. I figure we're all adults here, and, uh, you know, it's kind of actually interesting the way he does it. So you'll see. But, you know, for some reason, you know, that really bothers you. You have been warned. And with that little teaser, let's get into part two of my interview with Cory Doctorow. Well, the other thing that, that the place this comes up is uh, in the right to repair. Uh, mm -hmm. And so that's a, just another way that they get you. And, you know, the two the, the two big examples, I'm sure a lot of people will think of the Apple iPhone, where the, there's been a lot of lit you know, litigation recently about, you know, how how and whether third parties are allowed to repair Apple products. And, and I think the way that Apple governs that is that you have to use Apple Apple parts in your Apple products, not third party ones. And so therefore they control that. Uh, that market. And then, and then the other big one was John Deere where somewhere along the line, somebody gave away the right to fix your own tractors. Talk to us a little bit about those because those are very interesting cases. Sure. Yeah. I think that in, you, you're right about Apple's case that they bind the official repair depots to a bunch of terms. Perhaps the most insidious of all though, is defining when the product is end of life. Mm -hmm. So uh, Apple has historically made the claim that third-party repair cannot be affected on their devices beyond a few minor repairs because they're just too complicated to work on. Mm. And that claim goes part and parcel with the second claim, which is that when Apple tells you that a repair is just flat-out impossible and the device needs to be scrapped, that's, they are the ultimate source of information about that. Now, uh, against those two claims, consider that at the beginning of, of 2019, I think on January the 3rd, in Tim Cook's first communicate to his shareholders of the year, he said that the single biggest risk that Apple faces to its profits is that people are fixing their stuff and holding on to it longer instead of replacing it. Apple authorized service depots don't just get to gouge you for repairs and parts. They also get to announce periodically that your device is not eligible for a repair at all and that you're just going to have to throw it away. And, and when that happens, Apple gets to sell you another device. So there were 20 state-level right-to-repair bills introduced in 2018, and Apple led the industry coalitions that defeated every single one of them. Wow. And that is not a coincidence. 
Apple has innovated in all kinds of crazy ways, and not, not good ones. Like, they design parts which are original Apple parts, but which are bonded to the device that they were originally installed in, like digitizers, screens, mm-hmm. where if you take the screen off of an, uh, an Apple iPhone X and put it into another Apple iPhone X, so you have a device where maybe the internals are, 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 are gaunt, but the screen is still good, and you have another device with a, with a cracked screen, but that is perfectly fine, mm-hmm. and you take a donor screen from the one device and put it in the other, the device says, you need to enter an authorization code to affect this repair. And you can reverse engineer that authorization code out of Apple's ROMs or whatever. That's a felony. Or Apple gets to make you go to an authorized depot and get your repair affected there. So this is, this is a game that the automotive vendors are playing. And there's a Massachusetts right to repair bill that I've just given comments on that's for the automotive sector. And uh, if it fails... They've also teed up a ballot initiative for 2020. This is obviously happening in agribusiness. So, you know, not only have farmers accustomed to fixing their own tractors, but the modern tractor is effectively an invention of farmers. So John Deere in its early days employed engineers, field engineers, who went around and looked at what farmers had done to make their tractors better suited Hmm. to their use cases, and then industrialized that and incorporated it into future tractors. And today... Farmers still want to fix their tractors, and they get parts, and they can swap them in. But just like that iPhone X screen, after you swap it in, the tractor says, I'm sorry, I will not recognize and activate that part Hmm. until a technician comes out to your farm, charges you for a service call, and enters an unlock code in your uh, tractor. And by the way, every time you turn on the ignition and click the the next screen, you have agreed to that as one of your terms of service. And you get these very perverse outcomes as a result of this. So, so one of the things that, that came out of this is that people started to make their own firmware for John Deere tractors illegally. The major source of this firmware is Ukraine. Hmm. No one knows who writes it or maintains it. And it's proprietary software, too, ironically. <laughs> so no one knows what's in it. Like, is there a remote kill switch that would let you shut down right. all the tractors in America? We don't know. Right? So you have farmers who are illegally swapping in firmware and... The, the, what you're ending up with is this potential systemic risk to the entire agricultural sector as a result of John Deere abusing this law. Now, Deere has got all kinds of things they get to do by being able to control your tractor. Like, for one thing, when you drive your tractor around your field, you conduct a, a centimeter-accurate soil survey oh, because wow. the density sensors or the, the torque sensors on the wheels and the humidity sensors are, are telling you about the soil conditions on a centimeter-by-centimeter level. Deer aggregates that information for sale into the agricultural futures market. Um, They do not give that information back to farmers unless farmers buy it with an app that comes with seed from Bayer Monsanto. So if you want to broadcast your own seed using the data that you generated tilling your own field, you need to pay Deer for that. Now, again, this is the kind of thing that you would expect in a competitive market that a third party would just come along and fix. Right. be like, hey, look at this stupid anti-feature. Everybody hates it. No one woke up this morning and said, I wish my tractor wouldn't let me see my own data, so I'm making the add-on that extracts your data for you. The problem is that it's been felonized. Wow. All right, so before we get into some possible solutions to this, let me just, uh, uh, I had a few just, you know, kind of devil's advocate thoughts. So, sure. 
So you know, some of these things with the repairs and like Sonos was one of them is, you know, you know, these devices are just, they're just too old. I mean, they, you've had them for a long time. We just, you know, we can't support them, you know, so how, how old is too old? At what point would it be okay for someone to say, you know, that device is too old. I, I can't provide software for it anymore. So let's get back to this idea of a floor and a ceiling. I'm willing to stipulate that we might have a consumer rule that says you have to maintain software for a certain number of years, but not forever. And that we might say that that's fair. And that would be the floor on how long is too long. The ceiling should be that we withdraw from firms, at the very least, firms that have end of life their products. We withdraw from them the legal privilege of forcing people not to make competing firmwares for their devices. Mm -hmm. And then, if on the one hand, uh, the firm no longer wants to support the device, and on the other hand, no one in the world wants to make a competing firmware for it, then maybe we say that that is at its end of life. Now, there are other possibilities between those two. Like we might say, when you end of life the device, you have to publish the firmware mm -hmm. and the APIs and the uh, bootloader lock keys and all of the other things to enable those third-party firmwares, because I think as a society, we have an interest in diverting that stuff from our landfills. And as private property owners, we have the right to have every possible advantage in maintaining the enjoyment of our property. But... The too-long question, I think, is the wrong framing because it implies that the only possible way that a device might work after the manufacturer gets tired of it is by forcing the manufacturer to continue to support it as opposed to forcing them to allow other parties to support mm -hmm. it. Yeah, good point. So another one that you often hear, and this is Apple comes to this with kind of the too, the too complicated part, but also like nobody can replicate our stuff. It's Our stuff is... Uh, is much better than anything else. And like for printer manufacturers, the common thing was, well, you know, for a while, if they couldn't block, you'd say, well, you can use a third party, but you've, you know, voided your warranty and you're probably going to ruin your device. And I've actually, <laughs> I, would, I actually kind of did this. I used some, I used some much cheaper ink and had some bad things happen to my printer. So, you know, are things, is it possible for things to be so complicated or so, uh, I don't know what, what a better word for that was, that, that only, that if you went away from the first party manufacturer, you're you're probably going to break your device. I mean, is, is that a worthy argument? Well, so, you know, I think part of that argument was settled by federal statute. So you taking a, a device to a third party repair depot, it, it's not lawful for the original manufacturer to void your warranty. So Congress hmm. already settled that question for us. They They balanced out all of the arguments for and against and said it is an invitation to mischief to allow firms to decide who gets to compete with them. And so, you know, suck it up, Buttercup. You sold the product. <laughs> the deal is, if someone else breaks it when fixing it, then you're still going to be on the hook. So maybe you better make your devices easy to repair, publish documentation, have uh, parts in the part stream, and everything you can so that these warrantied uh, devices continue to be uh, operational in the field as opposed to inviting them to design it so they self-destruct when third parties try and fix them. As to whether they're the smartest guys in the room and no one can maintain them, I mean, I've heard this argument about printer ink, and I dug into this a lot when I was fighting with HP a couple of years ago over them. Um, they shipped out a deceptive software update that pretended to be a security update, and when you ran it, so you woke up one morning and your, your inkjet's touchscreen said, there is an update, do you want to install it? And you clicked OK, and then it rebooted, and then it said, update, you know, software updated, uh, and what it actually did was it counted down for six months, uh, so this was installed oh, wow. in March, and in September, it suddenly started checking to see whether your toner cartridge was an HP cartridge, <laughs> and if not, it refused to use it. 
right? So they, they talk about poisoning the waters, right? This is yeah. like going, like, um, giving people fake vaccinations, you know, in order to, in order to like, you know, check their immigration status or something, right? Where, where now you've got people who are avoiding something that we need, like for herd immunity, we need people to keep their HP printers <laughs> patched because they can be malware vectors right. that attack other devices. And HP has just told people that if you update your firmware, sometimes you'll get a better firmware and sometimes you'll just get, I, I don't know, can I swear on your podcast? <laughs> Go ahead. Sometimes you'll just get fuckery, right? <laughs> and you don't know whether you're getting an upgrade or fuckery until six months after the fact. Like, they're just, they're just training users to, to stop patching. So anyway, I talked to HP a lot about this back when, back when we were getting signatures on petitions and talking to attorneys general and stuff. And, and their answer was, well, our inks are archival quality and they don't fade and they're, they're very true to color. And I, I like, thought about the last 30 things I printed, and, you know, 15 of them were boarding carts, right? And then right. The, other, the other 15 were, like, notes for a talk, where I threw them away as soon as I read them. It's like 12-point courier double-spaced. And so, you know, maybe I'm not the world's most typical use case, but I think people who print out photos for long-term archival use are careful about the ink that they buy and True. the paper that they use. And moreover, I think that HP might not make the best ink in the world. I think mm -hmm. it's entirely possible that someone out there might make even a better ink that costs even more than HP's. And this is the other thing that you'll foreclose on when you block out third-party ink, is not that people might make cheaper alternatives, but that people might make more expensive ones, better ones, for really serious professional users. I used to work in pre-press, and I'm here to tell you that there's a wide range in original manufacturers' inks. Uh, and that it makes a big difference which ones you get if you want long-term archival color uh, faithful images. Okay, so for solutions to this problem, and I'm sure you must have thought of this, and, and you know, obviously the go-to here would be regulation. You know, write some law that forces these people to behave or open their products or whatever the case may be. But given the situation in Washington and the fact that a lot of these big companies have a lot of overdue influence on our legislators through <laughs> campaign finance or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, if we if we set that aside, are there any? Can you think of any other solutions to this problem besides legislation? How else how else might we approach this and solve some of these issues? Well, let's talk about floors and ceilings again. So regulation might be a floor, right? And and there actually is some pretty good regulation pending. There's there's the Warner Bill uh, that mandates interoperability for online services, particularly Facebook. That that could do some real good. It's a pretty good bill. It's got a few rough edges, but it's like still early, and it might pass. We never know. And then at the state level, there's a ton of right to repair bills that force firms to publish uh, service manuals, to make parts available, mm -hmm. and so on. The state legislatures are actually a lot more biddable than the federal legislatures. And what we're seeing in Massachusetts is that when the state legislatures fail, that citizen groups are able to put these things on the ballot. Uh, that's how the original right to repair bill in Massachusetts from 2012 passed. It was um, sabotaged in the state house. And then it got put on the ballot. It passed with an 86% in favor vote when it was on the ballot. Wow. So that's another way that we can make these things happen. And then the ceiling would be withdrawing regu uh, regulation, right? So yeah. remember that all the things that are used to block adversarial interoperability, all the tools that the firms use to pull the ladder up behind them, those are legal tools. Mm. We could imagine amending every one of these statutes, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, and so on. And, and there are lots of problems that are manifested with these old computer laws 
in the years and decades since they were passed, and they, they're long overdue for, for revision. But there's a much simpler and cleaner path, which would be the promulgation of an interoperator's defense under law. So you may be familiar with things like a whistleblower's defense. Mm. And those are very simple laws. They say things like, notwithstanding any other law, including but not limited to trade secrecy, non-disclosure, tortious interference with contract, rules governing the classification of government data, it is never an offense to reveal information when doing so has a strong public interest and reveals wrongdoing, right? So, you know, judges still have to sometimes sit down and think about whether you've revealed wrongdoing or whether there's a strong public interest, but judges get to ask the important question, which is, was this the right thing to do? Not asking the procedural question, which is like, did you sign a non-disclosure agreement? Mm. And, and those laws actually work really well. It's, it's basically since the IRS has been almost totally defunded, one of the only ways that we catch finance criminals these days is through whistleblower laws. Mm. Uh, that that it, in addition to providing bounties for them, also immunize them from liability. So maybe you can see where this is going. Imagine an interoperator's defense that said, notwithstanding any other statute, including but not limited to software patents, tortious interference, trade secrecy, copyright and anti-circumvention, you know, and so on and so on and so on, it is never an offense to take such steps as are necessary to allow a bona fide user of a product or service to affect a third-party repair, replace a part or consumable, or add features that do not in and of themselves violate any law. Right. So yeah. provided that. So this this means that, like, if you make a bot that logs into Facebook every 10 minutes and scrapes your waiting messages and puts them in another tool so Facebook can't watch you read them and can't spy on you while you interact with your friends on Facebook, that's legal. If Cambridge Analytica makes that tool in order to, you know, help Robert Mercer fix an election, that's illegal because mm-hmm. it's not on behalf of a user. So. It's a, it's a, it's still a rule that judges are going to have to adjudicate. We're never going to get away from that, right? That that there will always be liminal and important cases where it's ambiguous whether the user is bona fide, whether the the purpose of the use is legitimate. But what it does is it gets our judiciary to sit in judgment over the important questions, not yeah. the procedural questions. And if you're an entrepreneur, or if you're a, a individual technologist or if you're part of a technology co-op or a user group or a specialist user group like, say, people with diabetes who want to reverse engineer their insulin pumps, and you believe in your heart that your cause is just, your discussion with your lawyer goes, this is why I think my cause is just, not this is why I think I'm not violating one of Facebook's 50,000 patents. Mm. That is a much simpler conversation to have before you go out to raise capital for your business or before you convince other free software authors to join your project on GitHub. That is a much simpler question to arrive at the answer to, and it orients our technologists towards what we want them to do, which is to help legitimate users of services liberate themselves from the bad judgment, greed, and venality of firms and their shareholders. That's very interesting. Yeah. One one more question, and I will let you go. As a sure. as a layman, as a consumer, who probably has no idea how these products work, and doesn't, and you know, can't look at a product and and, and figure out, you know, how interoperable it is or how litigious they are around, you know, third parties. As a consumer, if I want if I want the market, the invisible hand of the market to work, or even at the ballot box, what is there anything I can do to help further the cause as a consumer or even as a citizen? Obviously, you could push for legislation, but maybe as a consumer, is there 
how do I judge whether, uh, whether any given product is, is good or bad or better than another? It is really hard to shop your way out of late-stage capitalism, I'm telling you. <laughs> and, you know, I had this argument, it was literally 15 years ago last month, with uh, the then editor-in-chief of Wired, uh, Chris Anderson, about whether or not the articles in Wired's new product review magazine, which has since been discontinued, should have a warning that says, this product has DRM, and you may or may not get the features that you bought. They can take them away at any time. And Chris was like, oh, that's just scare talk. And no one's doing it, not even Consumer Reports. And um, as a result, it is really hard to know what the parameters are on any product you own. You may remember that Amazon um, did this extraordinary thing where they reached into people's devices and deleted their copies of 1984, which is just like the most you know poetically <laughs> terrible thing I can imagine. And um, in the wake of that, you know, I, I had been talking to Amazon's PR people about it as a journalist. And I said, all right, you've said that you're sorry. You said that you won't do it again. You said that, you know, uh, blah, 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 blah. But can you? Right? Wh- when can you do it? Mm. What if a court orders you to do it? What if you get hacked? You know, what if, what if uh, uh, you change your mind? Right? What are you technically capable of doing with my device? Can you delete files that I sideload instead of devices mm. that I download over the Internet? They never answered any one of those questions. They simply went dark. And every time I've been contacted by an Amazon PR person about any story since, I've said, I will only talk to you if you answer this question. <laughs> I have, this, is, this is 10 years, 15 years oh, wow. after the Audible acquisition, 10 years after the Orwell thing. No one has ever answered that question. So how do you know the answer? I don't think you can. Hmm. So I think that you said, well, supporting legislation is hard. This is like... How do I, asking how you as a consumer can exercise your market power to make things better is a bit like asking how you as a recycler can solve climate change. Mm. And you can't. I mean, you should recycle. You should right. shop around. You should punish companies that screw you over. Uh, and the problem is, though, that you will never be able to know in the absence of some transparency rules what you can and can't trust. And... Um, you know, with only five big companies in most markets and, and fewer in several of them, you're going to have a hard time punishing the companies that screw you over because you just might have to go without. And, you know, that's not an option for a lot of people. If you have diabetes, there's only like five companies making implants. Mm. You know, they're all terrible. <laughs> so right. what are you going to do, right? Are you going to walk around with a syringe for the rest of your life? <laughs> right. So... This is where organizations like the Electronic Frontier Foundation kick in. Yep. And I'm a special consultant to EFF. I just celebrated my 18th anniversary with the organization. Oh, wow. I, I have watched them spend money really, really shrewdly. They punch so far above their weight by being smart about technology and about policy and about law and about communicating to the general public. And not only is EFF a 501c3 nonprofit that wants and needs your donations and that you would be doing the Lord's work if you, if you wrote the check, it also now runs a network of over 70 regional affiliate groups called the Electronic Frontiers Alliance. Yes. It's up and down the country, and I think some in Canada now. And um, they organize around local issues. So EFA is organizing around the right to repair bill in Massachusetts. And they organize on uh, facial recognition bans in California and so on and so on. So if you want to get involved 
in a way that's more direct than writing a check, but less direct than devoting your life to being an activist and, you know, quitting your job to, to lobby Congress. This is a middle ground, right? Yeah. And it's, they have a lot of different ways you can get involved. But I, I, those EFA groups are amazing. That is great, great advice. And it's been fascinating as I knew it would be. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Corey. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for staying interested in the subject. I want to say thank you again to Corey for coming back on the show. He's always so interesting to talk to. Uh, he's got so much experience in this area that just had to tap his brain and get his uh, get his response on some of these things. So the upshot here, really, the, the takeaway uh, that I'd like you to get from most of this is that the Internet of Things could be really cool. Uh, connecting certain devices to the Internet allows them to offer some really interesting, useful services, things that you probably couldn't do otherwise. I mean, the whole Amazon Alexa thing or, you know, and I'm sorry if I just triggered your device, uh, you know, if they didn't have the capability to send those little voice snippets up to the cloud, up to Amazon servers for processing, that little device couldn't do it on its own. Uh, so that service just wouldn't exist. But the downside of all of that is that now you are inextricably tied to that service. And these devices, which in many cases can cost a lot of money, can be totally bricked, can become completely useless if something happens to that service, either because the provider of that service changed their mind, they decided they don't want you to have this feature anymore, or they want to change the way some feature works, or they go out of business. So the internet servers that provide that service are just gone. Or in like the case of Sonos, where they just, they just decide that they don't want to support it anymore. And so now it's basically useless. Now, Sonos did back off of that. They did, after a lot of backlash, they got a lot of bad press for this. And they did back off on, on that, which if you own Sonos stuff, you've probably already heard all this. They probably emailed you about it. So in that sense, it was, you know, kind of worked out a little bit in the end. Uh, they have agreed to support these devices to some degree and try to come up with some way for the old devices to interwork with the new ones. They probably still do have the 30% discount thing if you want to brick your device and bring it in. There's still the issue of you can't really give that device to somebody else to use. You can't sell it and have a secondhand use of it, it sounds like. Uh, which, again, because they're dependent on this internet service, is something they can do. Which, uh, you know, with our other devices we used to own, you know, we think of we bought something, we can now sell it to anybody we want. And it should work just the same way. For all these devices now that are connected to the internet, and by the way, everything is now connected to the internet, including, you know, your car. In a lot of cases now, I mean, God, look at Tesla. I mean, they, they get software upgrades to their car on a regular basis. And by the same token, if for some reason something went wrong with that service, uh, you know, your car could actually lose functionality in, overnight. So this is the era we live in. And that's the, that's the takeaway for this is that while all these devices are really cool, just be aware that you're renting that service. You are, you've got a device that is tied to a service for which you have a subscription and that service can change at any time. And as Corey kind of said, that, that, that doesn't mean you're going to not buy these things. They're really cool. They do great stuff. But until we can figure out some better laws around these kind of things, it's kind of a new thing. We're kind of at the mercy of these companies. Uh, again, I would recommend uh, go to Corey's website, craphound.com. Uh, that's his blog. And you can find all the books that he's written there. I personally would recommend starting with Little Brother. It's a very interesting kind of a thriller novel about a dystopian future where a terrorist attack has basically caused the government to 
crack down on everything and, and severely curtail people's uh, rights and freedoms in the name of security and how that could really go badly. And uh, honestly, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not an impossible future for, for the United States. But along the way, as you read this, you know, very good page turner uh, thriller kind of a novel, uh, you learn some things about encryption and surveillance and privacy and security that are that are really pretty cool. So anyway, that's a great kind of a Trojan horse way of learning some uh, learning about why cybersecurity is so important. Also, Corey mentioned it, and I'll mention it again. Really think about donating to the Electronic Frontier Foundation. These guys are doing great, great work. They're doing it on your behalf, whether you give them money or not. Thankfully, there are people out there like me who do give them some money. And if you don't have time to really get involved yourself, the easiest out, the way out of that is just to pay other people that can. And they do it all the time, 24-7. They've got many issues that they're following up. They've filed lots of lawsuits. They've protected your rights. They've exposed a lot of wrongdoing and bad practices. They're doing great stuff. So uh, you can think about that. And he also mentioned the Electronic Frontier Alliance, which is sort of a grassroots group. In fact, we interviewed... Shahid Batar, who was uh, was the person running that show back at the EFF, he's actually gone on to running for the House of Representatives. He's a really great guy. I'd love to have him back on the show. I'll, I'll see if I can't find someone to reach out for him. I don't have any other email other than his EFF one, though, so I'll have to see what I can do there. But back to the EFA, the Electronic Frontier Alliance. Uh, you can go to the, the EFF website, search on or just search for the Electronic Frontier Alliance. You can get there by going to EFF.org slash fight and look for a local groups. Uh, maybe someone near you. There's not a lot of them. Uh, if you don't find one near you, they have the uh, all the information there you need to start your own group. This doesn't have to be a big deal. It doesn't have to be something you spend a ton of time on. A lot of these groups just to get together once a month to kind of, you know, talk about certain things or have little presentations on topics. You know, this doesn't have to be a big deal. But if you want to kind of get involved and uh, put yourself out there, uh, that's a great way to start. All right, that'll do it. Next week, we'll probably have another news show. We'll have to catch up on what's been going on out there. And I've got some other great interviews in the hopper coming down the pike. So stay tuned, subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Spread the word, tell your friends and family, post on social media. Uh, I would very much appreciate it. And that will wrap up our show for this week. As always, stay safe out there and don't get caught with your dropage down.